Welcome to the IFV podcast series. Today's podcast is a distinguished visitor lecture and features Major General Jeff Singleman, retired former Special Operations Commander Australia, and Professor Ron Arkin from the Mobile Robot Laboratory, Georgia Institute of Technology. This lecture was recorded on Wednesday the 9th of May and is entitled The Emerging Nexus Between Special Operations and Autonomous Systems, Insights and Reflections. Major General Jeff Singleman, retired, will be presenting first, followed by Professor Ron Arkin. Major General Jeff Singleman retired from the Australian Army in 2017 after 37 years of service, most recently as Special Operations Commander, Australia. Prior to this final appointment in 2014, Jeff served in a variety of senior roles, including as Commander Forces Command, responsible for the training and preparation of more than 28,000 men and women, and also as Deputy Chief of Army and Head of Modernisation and Strategic Planning, Army. Both presentations make reference to a brief protest, which is not displayed in this podcast, but which occurred during the first presentation. We hope you enjoy this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, my name's Jeff, and uh, today when I talk about artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, and how I think they connect with war through the eyes of a special operations commander, you might note that there's a tension in my expressions because it was less than six months ago that I actually led these programs for the nation and was connected to most of our alliance partners' equivalent programs. Almost everything I spoke about and did was top secret or higher. So today in my first venture in communicating in public life, I'm seeking to distill my thoughts and feelings in this important area in a way that opens up richer conversations and contributes to them, but without tripping over all that knowledge and reality that I know sits in the background that I can't talk about, but I'd like you to know that it's there. You know, it was only at the beginning of this week that I was reading in one of the local newspapers that the uh, police of Northern Wales had been trialling a new system to help apprehend uh, criminals. It was a UAV with an artificial intelligence-enabled bit of software with facial recognition. And they flew it above a footy crowd, they're looking for the baddies, and they were going to arrest them. And the system seemed to work pretty well because it apparently picked up over a 1,000 uh, naughty people. Uh, and, you know, it being Wales, I guess that's... That's what happens. Uh, But the problem was, uh, in the end, it only turned out that they made one arrest and all the others were what some of us might call false positives. Um, In other words, it was a great idea. Uh, Its potential utility and value to policing is is obvious, but the data's not quite there yet, uh, not quite trusted. And, you know, in that case, no-one died. It was a little bit embarrassing, perhaps even mildly humorous. But what if it was a UAV with similar software on board? What if it was autonomous and armed? And what if the algorithmic decision-making processes authorised lethal force in the moment on positive ID of the facial recognition because the targets are fleeting and the value is so high that it was judged by a national agency to be worth taking the risk? 
would you feel as comfortable with those technologies or the knowledge that perhaps potential adversaries had similar in their portfolios? And what if it wasn't theory? Today, while I'm going to talk about AI and war, obliquely, as I've gone on this journey, it actually ends up, for me at least, being a conversation about humanity, about ethics and morality, about who we are as a society and a civilization. We're the entity that goes to wars. We're the entity that decides to fight and kill people. We're the entity that creates these things and makes choices on how they're to be employed. Um, one of the reasons I'm here, and, and I even chose to speak because I don't have to, there's a lot of risk in being public given who I am, is because actually by going through the experiences I've been through in the last 15 years and being asked to do what I did on behalf of the nation, um, I've actually ended up in a place where uh, part of me feels remorse about the choices that are made in doing these things. A lot of me understands that the conversations, the politics and the arguments that underpin our choices when we go to war are nowhere near as sophisticated and thoughtful as they need to be and that given the consequences where lives are killed and incredible property uh, is damaged uh, on a wide scale, then we need to be talking more with each other about what that means and why. And I do wish they had a stayed because I actually think at the end of my talk, they may have been surprised that someone like me uh, ends up thinking more about them and being a citizen of, of deep concern and wanting to do something about it instead of a promoter of those things or an icon of them. And isn't that the far better thing to do? So... You know, when we look to where things are going, it's unfortunate, I can't explain it, but as a race, unfortunately, uh, we always seem to be wanting to go to war with each other and buying and building more weapons, spending trillions of dollars each year on those things and doing it. Uh, it's not my fault, not your fault, but it is who we are. It's, it's called planet Earth. It's, it's a reality that we're in. And gee, it's a facet of our nature, of our civilization that, you know, when I look in the mirror, I don't think I'm particularly proud of. And so, you know, through that prism, I do wonder, what about our future choices? And as individuals and communities, by being better informed and talking about these things, how can we become more empowered as advocates and ambassadors to make better decisions, to counsel more forethought? and consideration before we make these choices and to try and invest some of the resources that go into things that fight and kill in a more of the things that deliver virtue and goodness to the society that we want to be. And how do we do that when the entire debate appears to be so heavily weighted in favour of the status quo? And it's got to be a discussion that involves all of the stakeholders, reasoned arguments, factual foundations, and the open-mindedness to consider perspectives on the full spectrum instead of closing ourselves off or arguing in absolutes, which might make us feel good in the moment, but the world won't change a smidgen in between. And as a commander, 
who's participated in all the things that were on the video, as part of a nationally established force that did the missions that were authorised, it was raised to do, then I'm left asking the question, how do we do it better? And what do we do next? You know, the US has a definition for AI which is uh, linked to the military and it's all about being able to understand its circumstances and then make independent judgments based on a series of options to make decisions. That's where uh, experts in the field believe it's broadly heading. And, of course, most of you that know anything about AI or even read open literature loosely uh, will know that it's already awash throughout society. It's touching us at all points and in many different ways. Most of us are very unconscious to it. That wave of science and technology and the application of it is already washing through us. So if you're a surfer and you're starting to paddle now, you've already missed the peak of the wave. This is happening now and it's happening faster and in a more sophisticated way than most people realise. And at the wave front, there's a series of programs that aren't necessarily in the public domain. So what does it mean? What do we make of it? And what are the choices that we want to be part of as a society, as a civilization, and as individuals that help guide this? How, how do we do that? Well, I just want to talk about a couple of stories that, that I've shared that unfortunately left me with remorse or, or contradictions that illustrate the complexity in these spaces and the need to try and do more, to understand more, so that these choices become better and the consequences become less. So while at the moment, in an unclassified nature, there isn't a fully autonomous system in existence, uh, they are very close to it. And 12 countries at least have declared uh, autonomous weapons programs where physical things exist. Uh, one that was in your newspaper today called the, I think, the Uran-6, which is a Russian tank-like device. It can be operated by an individual, but also it has an autonomous mode. And in that autonomous mode, it can and be given the authority to use its weapons against what it is designed to do. Countries like Russia, perhaps China, have very active programs in this field. Each year in the world, several hundred billions of dollars are being spent in robotics and AI, and a fair percentage of that is either directed to or able to be drawn from the military and the defence community. Now, for some of you, you might be deeply disturbed by that. Nevertheless, it's a fact, and there's a momentum behind it, which warrants closer scrutiny and definitely understanding. Where is all this investment going? What is it going to produce and how is it going to impact on our society? And ultimately, through the prism of conflict and war, can we ever envisage or wish to envisage a scenario where entities other than human beings are delegated the authority to make lethal decisions? Now that's worth a debate, isn't it? an informed debate. 
So let me start with a couple of stories that, that illustrate some points. So only 12 months ago, there was the battle for Mosul in northern Iraq. You might recall it. Uh, Iraqi forces surrounded and broke into the city. They were there to defeat ISIL. It was a major operation. Unfortunately, ISIL were using the local civilians as uh, screens to prevent the advance of those forces on the ground. And it reached a point in the battle where virtually no advance of 50 metres or more could occur without knowingly causing casualties to civilians. That's very contradictory in itself. You're attempting to secure a city or seize it, presumably in part to save the people from the people that currently occupy it, but in so doing, you're visiting harm or damage upon them. And while ISIL and its techniques were clearly uh, war crimes in terms of what they were doing, nevertheless, the battle went ahead. Now, I'm not here to explain the battle or to justify it in any way, but there were two small stories that came out of it that I think are germane to what I'm here to talk about today. The first was is that ISIL used uh, UAVs, which they acquired commercially through web acquisitions. They weaponised them and they flew them in swarms against Iraqi forces. At the peak, an entire Iraqi armoured brigade equipped with US uh, tanks and armoured vehicles was brought to a halt as these devices were able to actually destroy those vehicles. How could such an unsophisticated adversary acquire off-the-shelf tech, weaponise it, and then fly it and use it that way? And in my mind, knowing ISIL well and their techniques, if they had the opportunity to take more advanced software that had facial recognition and grant those UAVs autonomous capacity to do the same thing, would they have made that choice and done so? The answer to my mind is unconditionally yes. They were prepared to do anything. They were already using women and children as screens against us. What is my point out of that point? that this isn't just a conversation about us and our society. It's also about a conversation about adversaries and bad people who don't necessarily share our values and outlooks. And that any conversation that ignores that aspect is an isolated conversation. Many of the big choices that are forced on us in major wars or conflict are forced on us because of the actions of others and the attempt to respond to those things. And as a society, unfortunately, we have a history where we tend to use these systems, mines, gas, nuclear weapons, and then afterwards reflect deeply about the morality of it all or the requirement for international laws or boundaries around them. I would argue from this that AI used in combat or military situations is potentially one of those fields where we want to think about it and get it right before it is used, not reflect remorsefully on it after it's been employed. Why is that? Because as dangerous as mines and gas is or as destructive as a nuclear weapon is, in the interconnected world that we're in now where everything is connected to everything else, the prospect of AI-enabled weapons operating through the cyber domain 
with the capacity to reach out and influence and shape virtually every aspect of who we are and what we do is deeply, deeply disturbing. Where our homelands won't be safe, our electoral systems may not be guaranteed, and what it is to be trusted or what it is to be a fact becomes vague and uncertain and leads to death. I would be deeply disturbed if we ever found ourselves in that predicament. I know. The second story is more disturbing. At an intersection in that battle, ISIL were taking an armoured tractor and they were attempting to ram vehicles with explosives on board and blow it up. It's called a vehicle-borne IED. And surveillance drones detected it and they fired a Hellfire missile at it and they hit the tractor. ISIL on board jumped off and ran into a nearby building. And the headquarters decided to drop a bomb on that building to take them out. It was authorised after the appropriate consideration and the bomb was released. In the final four or five seconds before the bomb hit the target, a family dashed across the road for whatever reason and into that same building that was occupied by those ISIL members. A man, two women and two children. And then the bomb hit the building. Now, that's quite disturbing, isn't it? And unfortunately, that happens in war. I'm not excusing it away. But what I am saying is that when things like that happen, as unfortunate as they are, the feelings that come afterwards, the remorse, the doubt, the consideration, those are human things. And I think it's good to have those feelings and those doubts and those concerns when you're making these choices. Because the prospect of war and the use of lethal force where those human feelings aren't key factors that guide us or constrain us or make us reflective on our next choices would certainly be a considerably different domain from the one we all live in now. The other observation there is that unfortunately war is not predictable. It's actually chaotic. It's fluidic. It's by design deceptive. And attempting to grasp that chaos and to algorithmically capture it, even with machine learning techniques, is something that I find very difficult to believe can be grasped. Because in my lived experience, despite all of my training and all of the technology that is backed around me, in war, things like that always still happen. And they always will. So are we saying that the burden of proof for AI systems linked to war has to be perfect decisions and no mistakes before we employ them because we've never, ever managed to achieve that and nor should there be an expectation of it when we talk about war or conflict. And if we want humanity to be part of the discussion whenever we talk about conflict, then what does that mean? What do we think about that and how much humanity how much of the person should remain in control of things like war and decisions on lethal force? That question is far from being answered. Now, a lot of the conversations have focused on robots or flying things, right, or Terminator-type visions, which alarm people. But I would offer to you that... 
while some of that may eventually become true, or perhaps already is true, the far more likely and disturbing area that we should be focusing on is what the Americans are calling doctrinally the grey zone. That is, it's not war, but it's not peace. It's significant competition. It's about influence. And our papers are full at the moment about critique on malign foreign influence. Uh, The Chinese are doing this or they're doing that, and we're disturbed by it. But we live in a world where no one trusts anything anymore. Do you trust what you read on the internet? Do you trust institutions? Do you trust leaders? Who do you trust? And that's in our day-to-day lives. So in war and conflict, where we're talking about information and systems, where the authority of life and death is at stake, then how can we be sure that the foundations that support those decisions are trusted, that they're factual, that someone hasn't got at them through cyber or other means and distorted them? Well, we might think we're making good choices for ethical and moral reasons, but if the choices are built on a pyramid of false or disinformation, then there could be a problem, couldn't there? The cybersphere, or I call it that, and the potential for AI to be involved in that program is an area that I think is well in advance of physical autonomous systems and what they may or may not be able to do. I believe that nation states are already practising this because it's not war. It's part of normal international competition. It's actually, oddly enough, not illegal either. It's deeply disturbing. It's sort of not on, but it's happening. And access and manipulation of open source data and systems to achieve goals that may be not in our interests is a very active sphere of influence. So imagine if an AI system focused on doing this as part of an orchestrated strategy by a nation state was being progressed, how dangerous or disturbing that might be. Now, wars at the end of the day aren't fought because we like to kill people or blow them up. Take it from me. They're actually a contest of wills between nations. And it ends when someone gives up, forcibly or by choice. So... If war is a contest of wills, why bother having a fight with a fleet or aircraft or tanks on the ground? Why not go straight to the heart of where national will is and attack that? Far less destructive, far less costly, gets far greater outcomes. War and conflict doesn't have to be the physical type like the battle for Mosul. It can take on other natures and the new technologies that are with us and are evolving rapidly, are opening up new vectors in which to explore and to practice these things. And the types of organisations that do it are being created or have been created as we speak and a completely new narrative, perhaps new ethics and new approaches are in play, but many of us don't realise it because our societies are geared legally and constitutionally for periods of peace and you flick a switch when something bad happens and we're at war. And in those two conditions, different authorities and choices are made. That's how we are in a democracy. But what if the war switch doesn't get flicked and those powers aren't activated 
and the big defence forces don't get to launch off and do what they do? What if the conflict and the competition happens just short of that? And the achievement of their goals can be achieved without crossing that threshold. What if they use our open societies and systems against us? And what does that mean? Both defensively for us and offensively for an adversary. It contributes to doubts, unknown unknowns, and concerns that we're not completely in control of what's going on, how these systems are being employed, and what the consequences and implications of these are. You know, I was uh, once uh, the Director of Operations for General Petraeus in Iraq in 2007, during the surge. It was a period where we actually thought we were losing. And General Petraeus turned around to the ambassador that was the head of the country at the time, Ryan Crocker, and he said something in a small group which sort of surprised me. And he said, you know, I've, I've been here in Iraq several times and for several years and I thought I knew how this place worked but I just realised I've got no idea what's going on and who the enemy is. At that point, basically, everyone was trying to kill everyone and trying to kill us, and we just didn't know who was who in the zoo. Now, my point out of this is is that, gee, it's easy if you want to talk about technology in terms of let's find the bad guys, they wear a uniform, or they get a hat on that says I'm the bad guy, and you find them and you target them and you, you do what you do. But what if the adversary you're after becomes very adept at hiding in plain sight? You actually don't know who they are. They're pretty savvy. They, they don't use their mobile phones anymore because they know from Hollywood movies about what happens when you do that. They don't walk around with a uniform on that visually allows you to identify who they are. What if they're hiding in plain sight, they're hiding in the shadows, and they're using techniques that make it very, very difficult to bring our advantages to weight against them? Well, what do you think the last 15 years have been about? The very best defence forces in the history of the world with the best technology and resources behind them have basically been in a contest that I would argue is close to a stalemate against an adversary that was actually quite unsophisticated, comparatively very poorly resourced, but through techniques and approaches proved to be very resilient and quite effective. Bringing AI or high technology to the table in a conflict certainly confers a lot of advantages that I won't dispute. But it doesn't guarantee an outcome, right? War is about people. People are pretty agile and clever. They adapt very quickly. They do what works and they stop doing what doesn't. And it will remain that way. And so this will continue into the future no matter what we do with these new systems and technologies. And we just need to know that in terms of our expectations and our understanding. For me, the point is is that war will always remain a human undertaking, always, with deep uncertainty and unpredictability, and we should approach these questions and issues with that always in the back of our mind. Politicians or leaders who believe that these things can be over in a year or home by Christmas or mission accomplished, are quite naive in their outlook. So let me start to uh, conclude with a reflection uh, from an author called Max Hastings, who produced a book called Armageddon. That's a little dated now. And Max wrote about World War II and is reflecting on soldiers and how they behave in war. 
you know, ethically, morally, but what do they do what they do? And in one of the sections that I found quite compelling, he talked about the German army and how there were units in the German army that had fought on the Russian front but then had been transferred to fight on the Western front and that those Germans on the Russian front had adopted behaviours that were ruthless, unforgiving, that indisputably by definitions of today would be normalised war crimes as common behaviours. They adopted those approaches basically because they believed their adversary was subhuman and that no quarter was given by both sides. And so the viciousness of the conflict elevated commensurate with those outlooks and conditions on the ground. And it wasn't an order from Berlin that told them to do it. It was an unwritten sort of voice-like arrangement on the ground that just emerged between the two forces. And then he found that units that were transferred to the Western Front after D-Day, fighting Americans, British and French troops, adopted quite different behaviours, even after two or three years on the Eastern Front. And while they were out to win and they were using lethal force, they were more respectful of their adversary. They were taking prisoners and treating them well. It was like there was a contract on their front between those soldiers that there were some more rules, perhaps some more moderation about how they conducted themselves. Now, the point I draw from this is that when we go to war, it's always a contest between two sides, at least. And often the nature of the conflict and how it's conducted is more than laws and rules and objectives and things like that. Often it's about things too which are utterly and quintessentially human, about how we think, what we want, what we believe in, and even how we fight. And there are lots of historic examples that go well beyond Max Hastings' example. Any of you that think that the way Australian forces fought the Japanese in World War II, as they came across Papua New Guinea, was any less vicious or the reasons any less different than what I pondered, I'd invite you to go back and read your history. Back then, they were quite open about declaring what they did and why they did it. It's in the war memorial records, absolutely. Is that in conflict, the choices we make can still make a big difference to how violent and dangerous and vicious we are in how we conduct these activities. And I think Max's insight is really interesting in this insight as well. And that is we still have a vote when it comes to war and lethality about how we fight and what we do. And that if machines or technology are going to be part of that equation, then we need to find a way to think more deeply about what that means. Otherwise, if the adversary you have is truly not human, like the Germans thought of the Russians, then what sort of conflict would we be in then? And how might militaries respond to an adversary that is employing machines against them? In other words, I'm suggesting it might lead to significant escalation and viciousness in terms of conflicts and how they're fought that are not necessarily anticipated, understood or controlled. So, look, it's well over a decade ago since I was in Vietnam, and this is my last story. Uh, Sorry, not Vietnam, Freudian there, I'm not that old. 
in Afghanistan. And here's something I'd like you to think about. It's night. There's a command centre, maybe as big as this room. There's lots of people sitting in tiered seats. We're watching a screen about this size. And a predator feed, which is grainy green, picks up about 100 military-aged males with weapons moving towards a coalition base. And all sorts of things start flying around and looking at them and trying to ask the question, who are they, what are they trying to do and what should we do about it? And that all happens and the information comes back for all sorts of reasons that they're the bad guys and they absolutely are on their way to attack the coalition. And lots of people run around and do their things and it translates into something I'll call a target package which has had all the clever people in there that basically say to the leader, sir, you are now legally authorised to make a decision to use lethal force. All of the conditions have been met. In a way, it's quite rigorous and you should feel sort of comfortable that those systems are in place. It's not a hip shot. So the commander's there and everyone looks to the commander ready to make the choice. And overhead is an asset with all of the firepower in the universe, to execute a choice. What does the commander do? And what would a machine intelligence do in the commander's place? Does the commander simply go execute and destroy the enemy? Or does the commander go, why don't I just take out the front 20 and see what happens? And if they go home... That might be okay, although I might be concerned that they might come back and fight me another day. Or do I drop a bomb 50 metres in front of them and basically let them know that we know they're there and give them a chance to reflect deeply upon the meaning of life and see what happens before I then decide to take them all out? Which choice is the right choice? What are the weight of factors? Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Each of those choices is pyrrhic in terms of there are consequences and implications. What should I do? What would a machine do algorithmically in my place? What do we think about those circumstances if you paint it within the context of the conflict and the fact that they've probably been laying IEDs the day before and killing troops, but also acknowledging that they're fathers, brothers, uncles and sons with families and it's their country. How do you weigh up all those factors in the choice you make? And after you've made that choice, how do you live with it? Now, I'm not going to tell you what the decision was, but in war, these things are happening every day, all the time. Decisions in chaos, invidious choices, complex situations that I've walked away from with a strong belief that these things are grey. They are not black and white. Understanding them, understanding the choices and the implications behind them are essential foundational knowledge points before we then talk about, well, what about autonomous systems and technologies and do we wish to delegate to them some of these or most of these or all of these things at some point in the future and what is our view on that choice? I think that's worth reflecting upon. So as part of my final word, can I say that 
We don't live in utopia. We live on the planet Earth. And unfortunately, that involves, amongst many things, wars, conflicts and lots of activities that aren't necessarily benign. And we still own the choices here about the technologies we have and the decisions as societies that we make. Our history doesn't give me a lot of confidence that we're particularly good at these things, despite all that talk about morality and ethics. But I think that's got to change. And I think we've got to build a bigger group that contributes to the discussions, that holds governments accountable, so that our choices when we decide to go to war or to commit to a conflict or to kill a person are given the gravitas and the weighting that they should have always deserved. Thank you. Now Professor Ron Arkin will present. Ronald C. Arkin is the Regents Professor and Director of the Mobile Robot Laboratory in the College of Computing at Georgia Tech and is the Director of the Mobile Robot Laboratory. He served as STINT Visiting Professor at KTH in Stockholm, sabbatical chair at the Sony IDL in Tokyo, member of the Robotics and AI Group at LAAS CNRS in Toulouse, and recently completed a year's leave at QUT and CSIRO. We hope you enjoy this second presentation. Thank you for having me here today. I've spoken on this subject before here at QUT, so maybe some of you have heard that. But I think we should first address the elephant in the room, uh, which was the uh, a protest uh, that was here. We should not pretend it didn't happen. We should talk about it. Again, I'm a, a U.S. Uh, citizen, uh, a visitor to Australia for a year. Uh, and it was interesting, the dichotomy of books and bombs. Is that, um, I'd be curious to be educated on that, is that really a, a, the dichotomy that we're debating at this particular point? Are the funds uh, being delegated to the military as opposed to education? It sounded like that was the case. Uh, um, maybe that's true. Is, is that true? So it's a diversion of funds that's the, the, the sore spot here. It's interesting because you know, I've heard a lot of different voices in the debate, and I've been engaged in that for uh, quite some time. And often the debate is more on uh, not a financial diversion issue, but speaking to just as Jeff was talking about as well, too, the ethical and moral questions that this kind of technology uh, uh, assesses, uh, is dealing with. So uh, thank you for sharing that point of view. And I do respect you for staying here, at least, uh, to be able to express that. It would have been nice if the others were here um, uh, to be able to discuss further and get a bit deeper understanding uh, of that. I don't know who, if in this room, is capable of addressing those particular problems about budgetary considerations, which are in Canberra, I guess, where, uh, where the monies are being allocated. But uh, tax dollars, US or otherwise, or Australian, uh, it's important to have a voice uh, in that. So maybe that uh, is useful. But now let me comment more directly uh, on, uh, and I appreciate the, pro I've engaged in protests for different things uh, as, as well too. And fortunately, we were able to continue, uh, which sometimes isn't always uh, the case. Uh, I've been engaged in research for uh, the military for 30 years in terms of autonomous systems. Uh, lethal autonomous systems only started to become an issue maybe a decade ago. Um, I have a particular point of view, which I'll share with you uh, in a minute if you don't know it already. Um, 
And uh, I've had the honor of being able to present before the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva, their assembly, uh, share my points of view with them. Uh, I've also uh, spoken at the United Nations in Geneva uh, at the Convention of Certain Conventional Weapons uh, that has been debating uh, the particular issue for whether these systems should be used or how they should be used and under what conditions they should be used, uh, if at all. That debate is ongoing uh, for uh, the last four years going into its fifth year, uh, relatively slow progress for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, we can talk about that, if you like, afterwards as well. And the question of whether, uh, the, the question I'm more confronted with is whether we should do this at all, not whether it should be bombs or books, but whether it should be uh, a lethal autonomous weapons or autonomous systems in the military uh, of the like. But let me talk about one of uh, Jeff's scenarios, which I think is uh, interesting. First of all, some of you may have seen the movie Eye in the Sky. Did you see that with Helen Mirren? Uh, if you haven't, I would encourage you to see it as well, too. It deals with uh, almost a dilemma like uh, Jeff was talking about, where there's a boy that's hanging out outside a location where a high-value military target uh, is engaged. And they're using automated software for proportionality and battle damage assessment to try and determine whether they should uh, drop a Hellfire missile on that target to take that out. There's a, a little child that's uh, selling stuff outside and then goes away and then comes back. I won't tell you what the outcome of that, but it's not unlike what Jeff was uh, depicting here. Uh, we can, my, my research has actually been motivated, uh, which sounds oxymoronic, but I'm very much concerned with affording better protection for non-combatants than we currently do. Technology is not currently being used uh, to the extent that it could in protecting non-combatants. They are killed and slaughtered uh, in the conduct of warfare, either uh, through atrocities or accidents or misdirected fire. Uh, uh, and you saw that you hear reported in the slaughters in Syria and other things as well, too, the sheer numbers of civilian casualties that occur. To me, that's utterly unacceptable, unconscionable, and as a scientist, I believe we have to find ways to be able to reduce that particular problem. One of the things that I do, which is contrary to some of my colleagues, and first of all, any of you that are pacifists out there, I encourage you to try and find a way uh, to end warfare, but unfortunately, uh, I don't know how to make that happen. Uh, and that would make all this talk become moot. Uh, I would be happy uh, to see that occur. But uh, the point is, we also have to deal with the fact that once we're entered into warfare, and this relates to just war theory, theory use in bello as opposed to use ad bellum, how do we fight once we're in war? And the entire IHL, International Humanitarian Law and Just War Theory, to a high degree, is concerned with the protection of non-combatants uh, in many ways. So how can we do better than we're currently doing? And getting back to the uh, scenario uh, where he talked about the family running into the building uh, at the last minute, the bomb had already been dropped, and it was too late, they perished. That uh, is my understanding, although I often say I'm not a lawyer, that's not a war crime to kill civilians based on theory and practices that date back to the Middle Age, Ages, the principle of double effect, where there's a, a necessary good and an associated evil, and if that good outweighs it, even if it's foreseen, uh, you tolerate collateral damage without necessarily committing a war crime, however unfortunate that happens to be. In this case, suppose, for example, that bomb was smarter than it was. Suppose, however, 
we gave it the ability, using artificial intelligence, to not engage that particular target when the situation on the ground changed. Obviously, there was not enough time to call the commander up and say, should we, in four seconds or whatever it was, the situation has changed, someone's run into the building, should we, uh, uh, should we fire or not? It happens like that. It's over. But suppose, suppose we could move what we call the intelligence to the tip of the spear, not only just to engage targets, but to determine when the situation has changed on the ground sufficiently to remove that engagement. To me, that's worth pursuing. To me, that would make the battleground safer uh, for non-combatants. And to me, that is the fundamental driver for the research that I'm conducting in this particular space. How can we do better than human warfighters? And I argue that these kinds of machines, the lethal autonomous weapon systems, should not be deployed in the battle space until we can prove that they can outperform human warfighters with respect to non-combatant casualties. And I've consistently argued for a moratorium, not a ban, a moratorium until we can potentially demonstrate that, which means we shouldn't do it until we know how to do it. But unfortunately, the world doesn't necessarily unfold like that. Um, so uh, I view these systems in many ways as the next generation precision-guided munitions, as opposed to the jargon which is called killer robots, which is raging through the debate in Australia uh, and elsewhere. We have this debate. I've engaged in it for 12 years as well, too. And I try and keep an open mind. Uh, books versus bombs, if it's a financial situation, that might be a different story. But the question is, we need to do, in my mind, an assessment of whether good can be achieved in very narrow, specific situations through the use of this technology, where warfighters may actually make mistakes. And this is often not in counterinsurgency operations, such as, well, the Mosul was not a counterinsurgency operation. There were just a high proportion of uh, civilians present. But where it becomes difficult to tell non-combatants from combatants, but where we can deal with, for example, high-intensity interstate warfare. Gosh, that's scary, right? But we've seen a couple of instances. One seemed to be waning right now, and another one seems to be waxing. More uh, opportunities for this uh, to occur uh, over time. So the real question is, how do we effectively regulate this technology or even ban it? I'm not averse to a ban. I've said it many, many times. If I can be convinced that this technology cannot be used effectively uh, in warfare. But I have yet to be convinced. Uh, there are many arguments that we hear that are deontological or rights-based approached in terms of the dignity of human life, and it's not dignified to be killed by a machine. Uh, there's all sorts of debates that are going on. I tend to be a consequentialist, which means that I believe that saving human life overall uh, is of value and may trump certain particular aspects. If fewer humans are killed, that's a good thing uh, in that respect. Um, and uh, uh, I agree firmly with Jeff as well, too, that war is a fundamentally a human endeavor. It is. It gets us in there, it keeps us in there, and a human presence in the battlefield must and should be maintained. Again, something I have consistently argued for uh, over the, uh, over the years. But I would also uh, maintain, unfortunately, uh, atrocities and mistakes are uh, a human endeavor as well, too, in the conduct of warfare. That's not to say that heroism uh, does not and can, it does occur, and robots, if they are used in this way, will make mistakes, 
will kill civilians. There's no doubt about that. But hopefully, if they are used appropriately in very narrow and bounded circumstances, they can outperform human warfighters with respect to non-combatant casualties. So uh, the other side, which I think I heard in Jeff's discussion as well too, was that uh, the use of this technology is largely inevitable uh, for whatever particular reasons. Uh, if you, we can see the NGOs which are out there and they campaign against killer robots. And if you believe and want to participate in the campaign against killer robots, you can sign up for it online and become an activist uh, if you so choose. I'm not going to tell you not to do that. I tend not to be prescriptive, and I'm waiting to be convinced that I should become a member of that uh, as well. I do support a moratorium, as I said, as well. Uh, but I do think, and this is really important, that we as scientists and engineers are not doing enough to protect non-combatants. So if you tell me that we should ban this technology Tell me what you're going to do on behalf of the non-combatants using technology. That's how I feel that this lethal autonomous system should proceed. So with that, uh, I'll close and open the floor for discussion. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at QUT edu.au forward slash IFE and we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.